0: The UK made unwanted headlines around the world this week. It followed the failed test of the Trident nuclear deterrent system. Uh, a test was fired from a submarine, a test missile. It, it should have flown thousands of miles before landing in the Atlantic, uh, being fired from somewhere around Florida, but it didn't fly very far at all. It just plopped down in the water beside the the submarine that launched it. Uh, Such tests don't happen very often, Uh, they they probably can't when each uh, missile costs £17 million. The last test was back in 2016, it was also a failure. Uh, The missile uh, went further but it veered off course and after this second failure there has been ridicule in the global media. Uh, One Russian news outlet said nobody was hurt apart from Britain's reputation. Uh, The Chinese and the Turkish media uh, were among uh, the other uh, countries' media enjoying what had happened. Another Russian uh, news host said that they were going to begin referring to Great Britain as Little Britain. Uh, whatever way the the, dre- the the defence ministry wants to dress it up, it is embarrassing, and it's also worrying. Uh, we're assured that such failures wouldn't happen in a situation where where actual nuclear weapons were being used, but you can imagine other countries hearing about these field tests and thinking, well, well, maybe we'll take our chances. Britain is all talk; uh, they can't follow through. And many think the same about God. They look at the punishments threatened in the Bible for unbelief and for other sorts of sin. And they say it's never going to happen. And they tell us that if they ever did stand before God, it would be them doing the questioning, not God. They tell us the questions they would ask. How can you allow cancer in children, God? How can you do this? How could you do that? but if only they understood the God described in this chapter, they would realise how utterly impossible it would be for them to stand before him and demand answers. Because this is a God who says in verse 19, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The God proclaimed in this chapter is a God who is merciful, who is compassionate, who is patient, but who will also judge. And the God of this chapter is no different from the God of the rest of the Bible. We've heard people say, haven't we, well, well the God of the, the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they're, they're, they're very different But here in verse 15, Paul quotes what God said to Moses in support of his argument. Uh, So the God who spoke to Moses is the same God who spoke to Paul and who Paul proclaims. Uh, And perhaps we could ask the question, how big is your God? How big is your God? There was a book written a few years ago entitled, Your God is Too Small. I haven't read it but it's a great title. Not that God is too small of course but our view of him can be. But we need a big God. When suffering hits we need to know that God is in control. Not simply watching on sympathising perhaps but, but not in charge of it. We need to know that he is actually in control of it. When the wicked spring up We need to know that God hasn't lost control of the world. In fact, we need to have the confidence of verse 17 here that even wicked rulers like Pharaoh who persecute God's people are raised up by God himself. We need to know that everything, absolutely everything, will work together for the ultimate good of God's people and for his glory. And so although Romans 9 is a much less familiar chapter than Romans 8, it's still a chapter that we desperately need. And the more that society disintegrates, uh, the more that Christian belief comes under attack, the more that we'll need a chapter like this and the vision of God that it gives us. So that's where we're going this morning with God's help. That's the vision of himself that God wants for us today. And as we come to this long middle section of the chapter, we want to look at it under three headings. Uh, The first two will deal with the objections uh, that Paul anticipates in verses 14 and 19, uh, which Paul phrases in terms of two questions. Firstly, and immediately following on from what we looked at last week, is God unjust? And then secondly, verse 19, why does he still find fault? And then we'll we'll deal with a third objection that is asked time and time again when it comes to this chapter. And that is what about evangelism? So so three questions we'll seek to deal with this morning. Is God unjust? Why does he still find fault? And what about evangelism? And firstly this morning, God is not unjust. God is not unjust. Have you ever been speaking to someone and you can predict the exact objection that they're going to raise as soon as you finish speaking? Well that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in this section In verse 14 he anticipates the the first objection that will be forming in the minds of those who hear this this letter and then he answers it. And actually one of the ways that we know that we're understanding Paul rightly is if we or others have the same objections. Whereas if, if we explain this chapter in a way that no one who hears it can have any objections to then we know that that we haven't really explained it but we've explained it away Uh, and the first objection that Paul anticipates is is there injustice with God in other words is God unjust so why would anyone say is God unjust uh, based on what Paul has said so far Well, Paul has been grieving over the fact that by and large the Jews have rejected the Gospel. He's told us about his anguish over it. But he's also been arguing that Jewish unbelief doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. As we saw last time, he's been pointing out that there have always been those who are Christians on the outside but aren't Christians on the inside. Like Russian dolls, Everyone can see uh, that one doll on on the outside, the biggest doll. But is there anything inside? And so in the same way, many bear the name Christian. Many go to church. But is there anything underneath the exterior? Is there true faith? Paul has used the example of Ishmael and Isaac, uh, both children of Abraham, both circumcised, but only Isaac is saved. Then he uses Jacob and Esau. They were twins, so it's the same uh, father as well as the same mother. But before they were born or had done anything either good or evil, God chose Jacob but not Esau. And the objection comes Paul has no doubt heard this in the past as he's preached. God must be unjust. If God is only going to choose some people, and if he's not going to choose them based on anything that they do, then that is not just, that is not fair. (coughs) Now there are various ways we could answer that question, or that objection. Uh, One is the way that we did last week, and that's to say, do you really know what you're asking for Uh, Do you really want God to deal with you in justice rather than in mercy? If you're doing 75 on the motorway uh, and a policeman pulls you over, you're not going to ask for justice, you're going to ask for mercy. Uh, uh, What we need to remember in all this as we think in the words of verse 11 about God's purpose in election, As we'll go on to think in verse 22 about God preparing vessels of wrath. What we need to remember and what the Bible is clear on is that the reason anyone will go to hell is because of their own sin. No one who has turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus will go to hell. Jesus promises in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So let me make that as clear as I possibly can this morning. No one who ever comes to Jesus will end up in hell. And the Bible doesn't just state that as a fact, but the Bible invites you to come to Jesus if you're not yet trusting in him. Jesus commands you to repent and believe Uh, the word of God says uh, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest so those who God doesn't choose they will not be punished because they weren't chosen but they will be punished because they didn't repent of their sin and trust in Jesus So all that is true, all that is important to keep in mind but but Paul goes down a different route. So how does Paul answer the argument that God is unjust? Well he'd also in verse 15 by quoting God's word to Moses uh, and then in verse 17 by quoting God's word to Pharaoh. And how does verse 15 answer the objection that God isn't being unjust? At first it's quite hard to to see. It just looks on the face of it like like more evidence that God just chooses some and, and doesn't choose others. But after wrestling with it this week, I think Paul's answer in verse 15 is that God is not unjust because he is acting consistently with who he is. I'll say that again. God is not unjust because he is acting consistently with who he is. Do you remember the burning bush? Uh, Moses asks God what he should say if the people ask him what God's name is. And God replies, I am who I am. And then later on in Exodus, when we get to the bit that Paul quotes here, Moses has asked God another question. He's asked, please show me your glory. And the Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So why does Paul quote that now here in Romans? Well, I think what he's saying is that part of what it is for God to be God and for God to be glorious is that he is not dependent on anyone else. Nobody shapes him, governs him or controls him. He is God. He is free from all constraints outside of himself. He is completely independent. And so quite simply if God was constrained to choose us and save us because of anything in us he wouldn't be God If God was constrained to choose us and save us because of anything in us he wouldn't be God. God is who he is and he will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. Whereas if God was to see someone do some good work and save them because of that. Or even if God was merely to foresee before someone was born that one day they would do such and such a good work. In both cases, God would not be showing mercy to whom he will show mercy. Rather, he would be showing mercy to those who lived a certain way. In both those cases, God would be responding to human beings. He would be making his choice based on what he sees in them. So in choosing beforehand, God is not being unjust or unrighteous, but he's actually showing his glory. He's demonstrating that he is absolutely free and absolutely sovereign and not dependent on anyone or anything else. And so in verse 16 it will make his mercy look all the greater because it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. Uh, We look at two people uh, and one is saved uh, and one isn't. Uh, There is nothing we can point to in the one that is saved uh, other than the fact that God chose them. And then Paul gives us an example in verse 17 which shows us that God's glory is what's in focus. It's another quote from Exodus. Boys and girls, yeah, you know that there w- were good pharaohs in the Bible and bad pharaohs in the Bible. There was a good pharaoh who listened to Joseph and made him ruler over Egypt. But many years later, there came a bad pharaoh who didn't know about Joseph, who didn't know the Lord, who wouldn't listen to him. And so God sends ten plagues on Egypt. But why ten plagues? Why didn't Pharaoh listen after the first one? Have you ever thought about that? Well, we're actually told. Sometimes we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart after one of the plagues. Sometimes we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart but Pharaoh didn't respond because his heart was hard and Pharaoh was guilty before God because he hardened his heart rather than listen to God when he had opportunity after opportunity to do so. But ultimately, as Exodus makes clear, as Romans 9 makes clear, ultimately Pharaoh hardened his heart because God had planned to show his power over Egypt and all its gods by rescuing his people from slavery. So Paul draws out the application in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. God is absolutely free. Absolutely sovereign. And he chooses to have mercy on some. And to harden others. Christian how big is your God. God. And if you say that's not fair, well at least it shows you've understood Paul correctly. Because that's the second objection that he deals with and he does so in verse 19. So firstly this morning God is not unjust, but then secondly God is God and we are not. God is God and we are not. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault Can you see where this second objection comes from? If God has mercy on some but hardens others, how can those whom he hardens be guilty? As verse 19 goes on, for who can resist his will? If people ultimately refuse to believe, that is what God has willed for them. So how can they be held accountable and again there are, there are different ways Paul could have answered that he could have said as Peter does in one of his letters that the Lord does not wish that any should perish but that all should reach repentance he could have said that when God has mercy on whom he will have mercy and hardens whomever he wills that he does it in such a way that those he has mercy on have to attribute 100% of their salvation to God whereas those he hardens are 100% responsible for the punishment they will face and they they will never be able to say on the day of judgment well well you made me do that God, you made me live that way. Paul could have said, he could have pointed out that even those who God hardens are given opportunity to repent and that if they did repent they would be saved. (coughs) All those things are true. So, why doesn't Paul go down any of those roads? Well, because in the end, it wouldn't answer all our questions. We cannot reconcile our finite, limited human minds with how God can be absolutely sovereign over salvation and uh, for human responsibility to be real and not just fiction. Though actually when I say we can't reconcile it, think about how we pray. When we pray for someone to be saved, we don't say, Lord, I'd love it if, if they were saved, but, but I know that you respect human free will too much to do anything about it. No, we say, Lord, save them. Someone sh- shared a clip just yesterday of a megachurch preacher saying that there's one thing Jesus can't do. He said... That even Jesus can't override your unbelief. That is wrong. Who can resist his will? Paul says. No one can resist his will. Jesus can override a sinner's unbelief, or none of us would ever have believed if we actually believe Jesus couldn't override someone's unbelief there'd be no point praying that anyone would be saved but we do pray that God would save people because we know that salvation is of the Lord and yet at the same time we look at the lives of those we pray for we look at all the opportunities they've been given and we know that if they go to hell they will have no one to blame but themselves When it comes to prayer, we know that if anyone is to be saved, God must do it. But if we sit down and try and and reconcile all that with, with human responsibility, we find that it's beyond us. And we must simply stop and say, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? But some won't stop at that and they'll keep asking and keep objecting and to that person the Apostle Paul says who are you O man to answer back to God and he reminds us that God is God and we are not it reminds us of of the end of the book of Job throughout the book Job has his questions his objections, his demands but then after 38 chapters the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and now it's God answering the questions Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And on it goes. We want to keep asking questions. What about this? What about that? But in the end, we need to remember that God is God and we are not. And to drive that home, Paul uses the illustration of a potter and a clay and the clay. Uh, Boys and girls, have you seen someone make a pot out of clay? Uh, There's usually a a pottery wheel spinning round and the potter has a wet clay in their hands and they shape it into a pot. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure you can go on YouTube uh, some other time and find a video of it. But if you do find a video of a potter making a pot out of clay, what you're not going to see, what, what you're not going to hear is the clay speaking to the potter and saying, hold on, I don't want you to make me into that shape. The clay cannot make demands of the potter and God is a potter and we are the clay or if you go to the driving range with your golf clubs and you're about to hit the ball the ball doesn't say wait a minute don't hit me in that direction I want to go in that other direction instead and yet we make demands of God because we forget that God is God and we are not but this passage it does shed some light on the question of why God chooses some people and not everyone maybe that's a question you've thought about okay I I, I accept that people are never going to believe unless God chooses them but why doesn't God just choose everyone then why does anyone have to go to hell and we do have an answer to that in verses 22 and 23 What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? In other words, why does God send anyone to hell in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? Imagine if Russia launched a catastrophic nuclear attack on London next month and a whole chunk of southern England was just wiped off the map. And as people begin to realise what has happened, they're just waiting on a, on a retaliatory strike to hit Moscow. But it doesn't happen and days pass uh, and it still doesn't happen and the days turn into weeks uh, and the media are asking whoever it is who's now Prime Minister, uh, they're asking uh, why? Uh, and, and the new Prime Minister responds, well, it's because we've decided not to react in kind. It's because we are being patient. We are not like them. We are patient. But of course, some people would suspect that that wasn't the real reason. Some people would suspect that the real reason was because Trident wasn't up to scratch and that the UK weren't retaliating because we didn't have the ability to do so. Someone's claim that they were being patient would ring a bit hollow if there was no evidence that they could actually follow through with their threat. And in a similar way, we would not see God's mercy as it truly was. We would not see God's mercy as so wonderfully glorious if there weren't those who did not receive mercy. If God didn't punish sin, we wouldn't have the opportunity to fully see his justice, his authority, his greatness. In fact, I think we could even go further uh, as Jonathan Edwards does it in the quote on your handout and say that without the existence of sin, God would appear less glorious because there would be no opportunity for him to display his justice and his goodness and love in saving sinners would shine less brightly just the way a jeweller will show you a ring against a black cloth so that it will sparkle all the more so God's goodness and love sparkle forth even more clearly when they do so against the black background of cosmic rebellion against him and so for this second objection that God is unfair there are answers that Paul could give but doesn't his main answer is God is God and we are not but then he does still give us that little bit of insight into at least one of the reasons why God does what he does but maybe at this point someone is thinking well well i don't understand all that and what i do understand i don't like and perhaps your big objection is well it seems to be pretty clear that paul's saying it's all predetermined it's predetermined who will believe and it's predetermined who won't believe And if we actually accept that, surely it will kill evangelism. If we believe Romans 9, or at least this interpretation of it, why would we ever evangelise? And that brings us thirdly, finally, and more briefly, to consider that evangelism is still essential. Evangelism is still essential. If you think that Romans 9 would kill evangelism... Let me remind you that it was written by the greatest evangelist who has ever lived, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Let me also remind you that one of the reasons that Paul is writing this letter, as he tells us himself towards the end of the letter, is because he wanted the churches in Rome to be enthusiastic about evangelism so that they would support him on his missionary journey to Spain. Paul was not an armchair evangelism enthusiast. It's possible to go to conferences about evangelism and to have theories about evangelism and criticise the way other churches do evangelism but never actually do evangelism. But as Paul dictates this letter, he does so as someone whose back has been ripped to shreds by flogging. He writes as someone who has been sentenced to death time and time again. Or escape death time and time again. So it would be a great mistake to think that actually believing this would kill evangelism. Because the greatest evangelist who's ever lived not only believed this stuff, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit. Or another mistake to make would be to think that if we can just ignore Romans 9 we won't have to deal with this stuff. That if we can put Romans 9 to the side we can get on with with the practical stuff of evangelism. But let's try that for a minute. Let's park Romans 9 for a minute and go to a book of the Bible that's all about evangelism. Uh, The book of Acts is about the spread of the gospel out from Jerusalem to the nations of the world. Let's go to Acts 13. The Jewish leaders they reject what Paul and Barnabas are saying and Paul and Barnabas say okay we'll go to the Gentiles instead. And what do we read next? When the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you catch that? Not as many as Paul could persuade believed. Uh, Not as many who decided to follow Jesus believed. But as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So whatever we do with Romans 9, uh, we can't get away from the fact that the Bible teaches that those who believe do so because that is what God has appointed But, of course, God has appointed not simply the end result. God has appointed the means by which the end result will happen. In other words, God has not simply appointed that people will save. God has appointed that they will be saved through the faithful proclamation and evangelism of his people. And, in fact, even in Romans 9 itself... all this, this about vessels of wrath and vessels of mer- mercy. It's not some theoretical thing, but it's Paul's explanation of why the Jews haven't believed, but the Gentiles have. The, the vessels of mercy aren't theoretical, hypothetical vessels. The sentence continues on to verse 24. Even us whom he has called. And to come back to what is really Paul's central argument in this chapter... The Jewish rejection of the gospel doesn't mean that God's promises failed. Why? Because not all Israel are Israel, as we saw last week. And also because this whole time the Old Testament had prophesied the Jewish rejection of the gospel and the fact that it would go out to the Gentiles instead. We don't have time to look at them in any detail today but that's what these two Old Testament quotations in the chapter are about or towards the end of the chapter are about. The second quotation from Isaiah in verse 29 is about the fact that only a remnant of the Jews will be saved. The first quotation from Hosea uh, in verse 25 and 26 is applied by Paul to the Gentiles those who were not God's people would be called his people and her who was not beloved would be called beloved and the Gentiles would be called sons of the living God Israel had the adoption we saw that two weeks ago from verse 4 out of Egypt I called my son and yet the Gentiles too would be called sons of the living God How can Scripture do that? How can Scripture prophesy that the Jews will reject the gospel and the Gentiles will accept it? Well, there are only two options. Either God simply foresees that that is what is going to happen and so prophesies it, or he plans it. Either God foresees what's going to happen, like a weather forecaster who can tell you that a storm is coming, but he can't control the storm, either god merely foresees in the old testament that this is this is what will happen or else god plans it god either foresees this or he plans it and brothers and sisters the god of romans 9 is not like a weather forecaster The God of Romans 9 is the same God of Isaiah 46 who says I am God and there is no other declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Well we've looked at some big truths today our time is gone and maybe you say well I struggle to hold these things together this chapter has answered some questions but it's raised more and I just feel like I can't square the circle. Well let me finish by telling you about someone who once felt like you do. Uh, Some of you know that my ministerial hero is a man called J.P. Struthers he died in 1915. He, he spent his life as an RP minister, firstly in Whithorn and then in Greenock. And Struthers' best friend was a man called James Denny. Denny was a theology professor and he once gave a lecture on the sort of things we've been looking at today. And a student apparently came to his room after and said. ''Professor Denny, there were some things in your lecture on God's purpose that I didn't understand.'' And Denny said to him very quietly, ''Young man, since that lecture was about Almighty God, and you are one of his very young and very small creatures, I am not surprised that there are some things that you didn't understand.'' And if that is the place we end up today, with the overwhelming sense that God is bigger than we thought and is doing more things than we can comprehend, then this chapter has achieved its purpose. If we end up not on our high horse-raising objections, uh, not on our soapbox because we've just discovered Romans 9 and, and we're now going to convince every Christian we know about this no matter what, But if we end up not on our high horse, not on our soapbox, but on our knees, knowing that God is good, that God is loving, that God is just, knowing that God is wiser than us and that God is God and we are not, then that will be a good place for us to be. Amen. We'll sing as we close the final verses of Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Verses 38 to the end on page 146. Page 146, Psalm 68, 28 to the end. Verse 28 speaks of the gospel going to the Gentiles, uh, to Egypt, to Ethiopia. Uh, Verse 29 speaks of all the kingdoms of the earth singing praise to God. And the last three verses particularly remind us of who God is and why he is worthy of our praise. Verse 30, he is the one who rides on highest heavens. Verse 31, all strength to God must be ascribed for his great majesty is over Israel. It is over us. And verse 32, you are from your temple, awesome God. And it ends with the cry, oh let God blessed be we must decrease he must increase Uh, so these final verses of psalm 68 from verse 28 uh, will stand to sing praise